fate foretold and then hoped for over the years, written into the hearts of men, the promise of the birth of a king. From one generation to the next, people passed on the promise, and they waited. Months before, God had sent his angelic messenger Gabriel to speak to a teenage girl in the rural province of Nazareth. Her name was Mary. Gabriel brought news from God, the great I Am, who had authored salvation since the beginning of time. Only heaven knows how long Gabriel hovered unseen above Mary before he took a breath and delivered his message. Mary, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Mary was baffled. How can this be? Gabriel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Most High will overshadow you. That's why this little child will be known as not just your son, but also as the Son of God. With God, nothing is impossible. Well, I don't want to break the moment right now, so would you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father God, uh, we are gathered here today and at Cactus Venue and Chapel to uh, rally around this Christmas story that, if I don't miss my guess, the vast majority of us have heard before. But God, the trick each year is that we want to approach this season with freshness. We want to approach this season somehow uh, discovering uh, the Christ child anew, uh, or Lord, maybe even more importantly, discovering, having you help us discover some things that we didn't know about Christmas, some hidden gems in this story that can propel us into deeper relationship with you. So God, along that lines, I pray that for each one of us here and at our Cactus Campus, our venue and our chapel, those watching online, that you might surprise us with joy, as C.S. Lewis said so well. Uh, take us off guard a little bit today, Lord, as we open your book and talk about your word. Speak to our minds and hearts, I pray. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have revealed to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there's been a lot of talk about Mary, Jesus's mother, mother over the years. And I mean a lot of talk. Uh, some traditions elevate her to a very high status, while other traditions try to bring her down to size a bit. Academicians bicker back and forth as to this whole idea of a virgin birth, and could that really happen? A lot has been written about Mary's age. Was she 13, 15, 18? I mean, how old was she when she gave birth to Jesus? And when she married Joseph, did they have more children as the Bible seems to suggest? Or are Jesus's brothers and sisters stepchildren of Mary? And so much more. Listen, folks, for 2,000 years, people have talked about this obviously important biblical character. Entire books have been written about her, and yet, ironically, 
with all the discussion on Mary, watch this, I have never read a book, never read an article, I have never even been asked a question, nor have I ever heard a sermon about Mary's joy. Isn't that amazing? Never have I heard people talk about Mary's joy. And yet it's right there, front and center, in the, in the opening salvo of Mary's famous Magnificat, the song that she sang after the angel Gabriel appeared to her and announced all that would happen with G, being Jesus' mother. Look at what she says in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, the opening lines of Mary's song. It says, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. My spirit has rejoiced. Now, two things I need you to notice by way of introduction to this word rejoiced here. Two things that I believe are literally game changers when it comes to our understanding of the power of joy in Mary's life and, as we shall see, ours as well. First, I want you to notice that this word rejoice here in the original language that the New Testament was written in is a very strong word. It's a very strong word. It's almost hard to capture it in the English. Let me explain. It's the Greek word agaliao, and it's one of the strongest words that the Greeks had 2,000 years ago for joy. It literally means to be extremely joyful, to be overjoyed. And so I like how one famous lexicon, which is a dictionary for Greek words, puts it. Remember, these are academicians talking here, but this is pretty strong language. It says in this lexicon that this word means to experience a state of great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expression and appropriate bodily movements. What is it saying there? It's saying this, Mary was really excited and her arms were lifted up and she was overjoyed when it came to something that was going on in her life that involved Jesus. In, in our modern day understanding, this is birth of baby joy. Remember those days? This is marriage joy. This is Super Bowl win joy. This is lottery jackpot joy. Think of whatever it is that fires you up, whatever it is that gets your adrenaline rushing, we're all wired differently. Think about that for you. That's the joy that Mary is describing here. Now, what is it that she experienced that allowed her to have this uber joy in her life. This is the second thing you need to notice about this word rejoice here in Luke 1:47, and that is that Mary is reflecting back here on all that the angel has shared with her about Jesus. Now watch this. And that, the reflecting back, became the foundation for her joy. Go back to the scripture here. I want to show them something here. In verse 47, and, and again, it's very, very subtle, but it's rather important. It says here in the New American Standard Bible translation, Mary says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. The reason that I like the New American Standard Bible quite often is because though it's a very wooden translation, it's also arguably the most accurate translation. And we're seeing that right here. Because almost all the other translations of the Bible translate this subtly differently. They have Mary saying, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
not has rejoiced in God my Savior. You're saying, wow, that's really a subtle difference. But it's rather significant. In, in the original tense that this verb appears in, in the Greek, it is in the aorist tense and the indicative mood. That doesn't mean anything to you. What it means to those who know Greek is that it refers to a past event. Almost always when a verb appears in the aorist tense, the indicative mood, it refers to something in the past. And so the NASB has nailed it here where Mary is saying, and you and I do this too, as I reflect back on something that just happened to me, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And so if you're tracking with that, the obvious question becomes, well then what is it specifically that Mary experienced with the angel, because that's the event that occurs right before this, that has created this uber Super Bowl lottery winning kind of joy that's in her soul. And to answer this, I want you to notice with me a few things contained in the interplay with Mary and Gabriel. We dramatically read that story for you earlier that I would argue has become the seedbed or had become the seedbed for this extreme joy that Mary was experiencing. First, look at verses 28 to 30 of that interplay between Mary and the angel. This is where it all starts. And let's try to pick out the first thing that might have given Mary this extreme joy. It says this, and in coming in, he, the angel Gabriel, said to her, Mary, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And so the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And so obviously I'm trying to emphasize something here. Twice repeated in these opening words of the angel, he tells Mary that you have found favor with God. Now now let's focus on that for a minute. That idea of favor meant back then, quite frankly, what it means today. When you show favor to another person, you are singling them out. You're kind of shining the light on them. And it's a positive light of attention and attraction, right? So if I had a flashlight here right now and I shined it on my buddy Dave here, I wouldn't be doing it to embarrass him or somehow, you know, uh, say, gee, look at how bad Dave is. No, I'd be shining the light on him to say, what a great godly man we have in the house of God here today. That's what we do when we shine the light, positively speaking, on another person. We show favor to them. Now watch this. Not because the person has necessarily done anything to deserve this. That's why it's called favor. Favor is usually a move of grace and kindness. It's undeserved in nature. And that's why it's called favor. So if you tell me after the service today that, you know, your boss favors you over the other employees or your mother favored you over the other kids or that you, like me, favor the Cleveland Browns over the Pittsburgh Steelers, if you tell me something like that, the obvious connotation is, is that it's a choice that you make to favor one thing over the other. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. We all do that every day of the week. And here's what you need to know. That's precisely what's going on with Mary here. The angel is telling her that the Lord God has favored her, that the light is shining on her. And Mary is initially perplexed by this. And so the angel repeats it again to hammer home that grace in the form of favor is now upon her. 
And what you simply need to know for now is that this creates an intense uber joy in Mary's soul, as it might for any one of us. Now, hang on to this idea of favor. We're going to see what it means for you and me in just a minute. But before we do, notice with me a second reason contained in this interplay between the angel and Mary that might have created intense joy for Mary. Look at the very next words in verses 31 to 33. The angel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now, As we look at this passage here, one of the first things you need to notice is that it is loaded with catchphrases that if you didn't know anything about the Old Testament would be rather meaningless if not confusing to you. But what you need to know is that Mary digested almost all of this. When it says that you shall name him Jesus, Mary initially thought there or immediately thought, well, Jesus means Yahweh saves. So some form of deliverance is now coming my way. And then when the angel says, and he will be son of the most high, almost all Bible scholars take that to mean that this is some sort of deity coming to earth, that God, the incarnation is about to happen. And then these three phrases just blow Mary away. The throne of the father David, uh, the house of Jacob forever, and kingdom that has no end. You see, most good Jews in Mary's day firmly believe that God was someday going to bring a Messiah, a physical and kingly deliverer for the nation Israel, and that he was going to put aside all the shenanigans going on in the Greco-Roman world at that time. He was going to bring back the glory days of King David and King Solomon, and he was going to set up shop there in the Middle East and declare an earthly kingdom that would have no end. That was the great hope for the Jews in Jesus's and in Mary's day. And so when the angel says that Jesus would be this Messiah who would rule on the throne of David and his kingdom would have no end, most of Jesus's initial followers, not just Mary, but all of them, believed that he was there to set up a physical kingdom in the Middle East. And one of the most profound realizations, gang, that the first century church had under the spirit-infused leadership of people like the apostles Peter, John, and Paul is that what both the angel and Jesus meant by thy kingdom come is that this is a spiritual kingdom now. God reigning in the hearts and minds of his new covenant people. God reigning in your heart, my heart, his church that Jesus came to set up a spiritual kingdom that would have no end and that someday in the future, yes, there would be a fulfillment of this physical kingdom, but that would be at the end of the age. And so what you don't want to miss is that the angel is announcing here that God's redemption, his forgiveness, his closeness is now here for God's people in Jesus Christ. At the very least, we know that this is what Mary heard. And this got her heart beating. This got her adrenaline flowing as joy was welling up. She essentially heard this gang. God is in the house and his deliverance is now upon us in this baby. And things are going to be different. 
for those who dare to embrace him. Now, once again, I want you to hang on to this idea of deliverance, like you did with the idea of favor. So there's only two things I'm asking you to remember right now, favor and deliverance. And we're going to see what all this means for us in just a minute. And as you're chewing on that, notice one final thing that the angel says to Mary that caused her to rejoice as she reflected back on all of this. And it's found in the closing words of this passage in verse 35, when Mary inquires as any of us would as to how all of this is going to happen since a young girl who is a virgin is going to have a hard time completing all these tasks at hand. And it says in verse 35 this, the angel answered and said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, this is incredibly important here that you see this because this most people just gloss over and they miss the profound point. And that is that all of this, everything that's about to happen in the Christmas story that you and I know and love will be accomplished not by the Father, not by the Son, but by the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be Mary's ingenuity that gets any of the Christmas story done. <laughs> it's not going to be Joseph's involvement at all. It's not going to be a well-run church program. It's not going to be a capital campaign. None of these things is going to get the Christmas story done at all. No, God wants everyone and everything out of the way so that he can do the work, so that every generation would look back on this original Christmas and say, only God. His power was upon Mary, literally overshadowing her. That's what we'll see this through. And so now add it all up. You got favor upon Mary. You got deliverance coming her way that they've been waiting for for centuries. And you got this Holy Spirit infused power. And I'm telling you that this became the trifecta for Mary's joy. And remember, not just any joy, but overjoy extreme joy, birth, marriage, Super Bowl win joy. And here's the point. Here's what should blow your mind. And that is that each and every one of these things that Mary experienced with the angel, you ready for this? From favor to deliverance to spirit-infused power is likewise promised to each and every follower of Jesus since then. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. And, and I don't mean to at all diss this young girl. But Mary was not unique in the sense of having favor or grabbing onto deliverance or having the Holy Spirit descend on her in power. All three of those things would become a prototype for every follower of Jesus Christ. And so those three things that gave Mary joy are exactly the ingredients that are designed to give you an eye joy no matter what's going on in your life right now. It's true. In a tit-for-tat fashion, the Bible will go on to reveal that these same three things that gave Mary this intense joy and gladness can be ours as well. 
as we follow Jesus. In the same measure, in a very similar way. And so let me show you what I mean. Let's take each one separately in our time remaining. So here's the first thing that you need to realize about joy in the Christmas story. And that is that just like Mary, because of Jesus, his favor is upon you. (laughs) Man, I'm telling you, most Christians have no clue of this. His favor is upon you. Now, I want to show you something uh, right now contained in the text here that runs the risk of boring the snot out of many of you. And I don't mean to do that right now. I really don't. But, but, you know, when you study the Bible in the original language, which, by the way, pastors who preach should do, because that's what it was originally written in, that's where the inerrancy and the inspiration is found, all the rest are translations, and they're good translations, but if you're going to be most accurate, you need to study the, la- the original language to get the nuance of what is being said. I want to show you something that I think is rather important. We looked at this passage earlier, Luke 1, verse 28, where it says, and in coming in, he, the angel, said to Mary, greetings, say these two words with me, favored one. And and we noted that Mary had found favor with God. Now, I I mentioned, I didn't mention this, but this word favored here is a fascinating word. It's the Greek word karatu that is a derivative of the main word for grace, the Greek word charis, which appears about 140 times in the New Testament. But what's interesting about karatu is that it's a derivative of charis. It means favor or blessing. It's a cousin to grace. But here's what's really going to blow you away, is that it's only used two times in all of the New Testament. Only two times. The first time is here in the angel's word to Mary that she has found favor with God, you know, welcome favored one. The second time is used in light of, who would you guess it's used in light of? I'll give you a hint. You. Boy, you guys are asleep here. Let me try that again. I'll give you a hint. You. Uh, Let me show you this. Look at Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6. This should blow your mind, gang. It says, in love, he predestined, say this word with me us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now watch this. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on, say it again, in the beloved which means Jesus. Now you're saying well where's that word favor? It's right here in the yellow. Again I can only deal with English translations. And the English translation here takes that word karatu that was translated favor back in Luke 1. And it says here in talking about us that when he saved you, when he predestined you, when he adopted you into Christ, that he did this because of his favor on us in the beloved. It's translated here freely bestowed. I like the King James. It says in which he accepted us. Because he has favor on us in Jesus Christ. It's all getting to the same idea here. You can't escape it. That in Christ, if you're a follower of him, God says, you're now the apple of my eye. God says, the light is shining on you. Not to shame you, not to find you out, but in a good way. His light now follows you and shines on you. And like Mary... What you need to know is that as you wake up every day, this favor that is upon you from God 
can and should be the foundation of your very joy. You know, a little while ago, I met with a gal here in this church who uh, waited patiently to uh, meet with me over a personal issue. And I had another pastor sit in, as I always do when I meet with somebody from the opposite sex. And the three of us were sitting there in my office. And, and I heard a story that I'll probably never forget. Uh, she shared a story of how she'd been in a marriage for almost 50 years now, and, and that this marriage was, just to put it mildly, uh, not what she'd hoped it would be. There was early on physical abuse, and then uh, ever since then, just constant verbal and emotional abuse. And, and she literally had tears in saying that though she chose to stay with the man, it's just been a very, very difficult marriage. He'll never come to church with her. He's not interested in spiritual things. And it's just been a very difficult journey for her. As we unpacked her story, one of the things that I noted, and this would not be unusual if you understand uh, abuse and victims, is that this woman, even as she was older in her age, had a tremendous amount of shame going on in her soul. I, I mean, she almost felt guilty for all the things that she had in her marriage as if somehow it was her fault. And I remember a couple of times trying to reel that one back in and say to her, yeah, but you know, most of us would have probably responded that way. And given what he did, what you did was very, very mild. But every time I tried to say that, the shame was so strong in her, her self-image was so beaten down that it was hard for her to, to see clearly at all, maybe what was going on there and that it really wasn't her fault. Being a church that has quite a few resources here at Scottsdale Bible Church, me and the other pastor eventually suggested uh, that we would help her get some counseling, and, and we have and did, and it's been a wonderful thing for her, and I believe over time you can break out of that, that shame mode and that terrible low self-image mode that happens when you get uh, beat up fig figuratively and literally for all those years. But as I was processing my talk with her a little while ago, one of the things that hit me was how though I didn't experience abuse as a child, I sure get the shame thing, even when I was a young Christian. I've told you guys this before, but you know, growing up, I did not have a good relationship with my father. In fact, I remember my father years ago said to me, and I thought this was just hilarious, he said, you know, you and I never got along since you were three. And I remember thinking, you know, well, I'm not sure the onus is on a three-year-old, but I understand what you're saying, Dad, you know, and, and we really never did, and, and we never had a great relationship. We do now, but it took years to get there. And I also had a lot of shame when I was a young man because I was very, very small. I've told you guys that. I was a late bloomer. I entered high school at four foot 10, 85 pounds. I left high school about five foot one, five foot two, and I weighed about 120 pounds. I didn't shave till graduate school. I was very small. And though I didn't get beat up often because I could run very fast, <laughs> I, I did get picked on a lot because I was small. And just suffice it to say that between not having a great relationship with dad and being very diminutive in size, I entered adulthood with a rather low self-esteem and a lot of shame. And then on March 11th, 1981, I accepted Jesus Christ. And all my problems went away. Can you believe it? No, that's not true at all. For the next 20 years, I would struggle intensely with shame. And, I, and I'm telling you, it's, it's hard to almost explain it to you guys, but anytime my wife would be critical of me, anytime somebody in the church would say something negative, man, I would just spiral down in my spirit. I wouldn't tell anybody, but I would just go to bed feeling like a hundred pounds of sin on a popsicle stick. 
I just feel terrible about myself. And I battled that for 20 years, eventually to the point that my pastor, like I did with this dear lady, said to me in the mid 90s, you need professional help. And by the way, I felt shame when he said that. He, he said, you need to get help. And he was right. And I entered into counseling for a couple of years and it was incredibly healing for me. But here's what you might not know. More so than the counseling, more so than even the friendships I developed and the people I eventually opened up to, you know what the number one thing was that helped me break out of my shame cycle that lasted two decades as a Christian and now I've really not had for the last two decades as a Christian. I've been a Christian for 40 years. It took me 20 years. But it was this whole idea of favor with God. You see, I needed to learn in the first 20 years of my walk with the Lord. Now, this might seem so simple to some of you, but if you come from a painful, abusive background, this is very real. I had to learn in the first 20 years of my walk with the Lord that he really does love me and that he really isn't down on me most days and that he really is for me. And to use our term here today, that his favor truly rests upon me. If you had told me in the first 20 years of my walk with the Lord that his favor is upon me, I would have given the good Christian line and I would have said, amen, I know that. But I didn't really believe it. It's only been in the last 20 years as I've walked closely with God that I've realized that truly he loves me and that his favor is upon me. And here's how powerful that is, that no matter what might go south in my world, no matter what email you send me, no matter how much you dislike the decisions I make, no matter what I might say from the pulpit that I'll agree was a dumb thing to say, try as hard as you might to try to shame me. In the last 20 years, honestly, and I don't mean this negatively, I say to myself and I believe it, I don't care because I know the one that loves me. And as Paul the apostle said, this is right from the scriptures, I do not allow myself to be judged by you. It is the Lord God who judges me. And Paul even said, I don't even judge myself because I gotta be careful that I don't allow those old tapes from growing up and from feeling small and all those things to, to rear their ugly head and say to me, even at the age of 54, you're a loser and God is not for you. No, I believe the opposite, and I truly do, that his favor rests upon me, not because I'm a pastor, not because of anything like that, but because I'm his. And here's the point, the same is true for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, man, I deal with so many Christians who are just mired in shame. I want you to hear today, even if you just affirm it intellectually, it'll eventually get to your heart, that he looks upon you with favor, that his light shines on you, that in your darkest moments, this can and should make all the difference. If nothing else you hear today, hear this, that like the angel said to Mary, oh favored one, he favors you. He says the same to you. So cheer up, Christian. He loves you. He smiles on you. So you might as well learn to smile back. Because Christmas is truly about joy and the same joy that Mary found in being smiled upon by God is the same smile he puts on you and it's real. Now, we had about 10 minutes before our communion time to look at the other two things 
that gave Mary joy and realize they're true for us as well. So a bit more quickly, because I thought that was worth focusing on, notice that he has delivered you from sin and reigns as Lord. So just like Mary received that announcement from the angel that the Messiah and deliverer is here and that gave her joy, simply notice that this is true for you. Now, how do we know this is true for us? Look at what Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14 says. And I want you to notice the same phraseology, the same concepts that were given to Mary are given to us. It says, for he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption or deliverance, the forgiveness of sins. So pause right there. I mean, we see themes of rescue, darkness, kingdom, son, redemption, and forgiveness. Those are the similar themes that Mary received. So the gospel that Mary got is the same gospel that you and I have believed. Now, let me show you the power of this gospel. Look at how Colossians goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll just highlight some of the yellow here. This gospel is given to us by Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, whom all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, meaning he is eternal, the eternal son of God. In him, everything holds together. Now watch this. And he is first place in everything. So that's why I say that you and I have received a deliverance from our sin in which we experience forgiveness each moment of each day. And on top of that, Jesus is now Lord of our life. Even when you don't feel it, even when you think everything is going to pot, he says, I'm up here on the throne and I am in your life and I am sovereign and I am in control. That's what Lord means. And I now am watching over everything you do. And as the old saying goes, there's nothing that comes your way that you and I cannot handle together. So if that doesn't give you joy, as I say quite often, I got nothing else. Because that is not a pipe dream. That is not wishful thinking. Don't listen to the secularists, the atheists, the agnostics today who tell you that your faith is in vain. It is not, church. Your faith is in a solid Savior who came into this world and loves you and his favor is upon you and he has forgiven you. As Jeremiah predicted, you wake up every day and his mercies are new every morning. And he cares for you. And he sees you through the kind of lens in which though you feel bad about your life, he does not blow your mind, right? When you're feeling bad about your life, he's not, Richard. He loves you. And he says, you're forgiven. And my grace is upon you. And if, oh, Christian, you could just understand that, you just might smile more. You won't be thrown by Fox News. You won't be thrown by CNN. You won't be thrown by midterm elections. You won't be thrown by your terrible job. You won't be thrown by the financial pressures you have. You won't be thrown when your kids take stupid pills. You won't be thrown by any of those things. You'll be sad by them. They'll discourage you in this fallen world. But your joy is found elsewhere. In a very real way, here's what we do, Christian. We rise above the machinations of this world and we find our joy in him, amen? Amen. And you gotta grab onto that if you're ever gonna get joy. You gotta join Mary in finding joy in the things of God, not the things of this world. And I know it's a battle, 
Man, I, I'm, I thank God most days I'm a pastor. You know why? Because I don't have to deal with the crap that you guys have to deal with. I don't have to go to work and be bombarded with secularism. I don't have to deal with my HOA. I ignore them. I don't have to deal with all the things that you guys deal with. I really don't. And I know the life that you guys live. I get it. And many days I say, thankful, I'm surrounded by other things. But I also know what it's like to be tugged in my soul, to be discouraged by the world around me and all the things going on. And when I am, I'm telling you, I rise above. I transcend those things. Because what did Jesus say? Remember those words to Mary? My kingdom will have no end. My kingdom is not of this world, he told us. And your heart need not be tied to this world because it's tied to Jesus. And it's in Jesus that you have your joy. A real quick thought, and then we'll move on to the last point and wrap this up. But I, I, I know the battle that I'm, I'm doing in this series here, or the battle I'm facing in this series is that, and I get it, I love you guys. Some of you come in, and, and you come in, even though you're not doing it physically, you're like this, because you're never happy at Christmas. You ever notice people like that? And I get it. Maybe you had a loss during Christmas like I did with my mom last Christmas. And, and you know, you're just, Christmas for you is not a positive thing. And so I know the battle that I have before me is to try to convince some of you folks that there really is joy to be found in Christmas. And here's what you need to hear, gang. Please don't miss this. I'm not going to try to ask you to find joy in trees or presents or lights or shopping or even necessarily singing Christmas carols. Those are all things that kind of give me the giddies because I kind of like Christmas, but my joy isn't tied to any of those things. My goal in this series is to help you find joy in the substantive spiritual things that live in your soul. That whether you like trees, lights, or gifts, or anything like that, I don't care. Your joy is tied to this baby, and this baby means everything. So Mary had God's favor, and so do you. Mary experienced Jesus' deliverance and lordship, and so can you. And then notice, finally, a third link to Mary's joy for you and me, and that is that the Holy Spirit lives in you with power. The Holy Spirit lives in you with power. As we've established the Holy Spirit, and I made a point of this, only the Holy Spirit is the one who made the Christmas story happen. Now, why is that important? Here's why that's important. Because the Holy Spirit, and again, most Christians mess this thing up. I'm not shaming you, it's just real. Most Christians don't understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who's designed to make your life happen day in and day out. And yet you have a choice, even as a Christian. If you don't believe me, read Galatians 5 as homework from today's message. In Galatians 5, it says that there's a daily battle going on with the Christian between what? The flesh and the spirit. And so every day you wake up, every day, I promise you, there's a fork in the road before you. And this is the choice you have. I'm either going to trust in me and my strength, my devices, my ingenuity, uh, my resources to make life work. And believe me, I look at you guys, you're very successful. You're very good at doing that. Or you can say, I'm going to rely on God, the Holy Spirit to make life happen. I'm going to give my business my career, my kids, my wife, my husband, my emotions, my dreams, my shattered dreams over to him because he is the one who is my strength. He is the one who is in control. 
We know this is true for us because Acts 1.8, the very last words of Jesus, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And the Holy Spirit descended in power on the day of Pentecost and guess what? He's never left. And again, I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, Jamie, it's so easy for you because you're a minister, you're a pastor. I mean, obviously, no, it's not easy for me. Do you know every week I battle with submitting my life to the Holy Spirit? There are times I'm so busy, I rush home to my home office and I just start studying for my sermon and I haven't even focused on God. I haven't prayed any prayer. I haven't submitted anything to him and I'm about a half an hour into it and I catch myself and I say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm getting sucked in again. And I pause right there and I put the notes away. I close the Bible. I shut down my, my software program and I say, oh God, forgive me for once again trying to do all this in my own strength and not submitting it to you. And then I breathe a prayer and it's the same prayer. I, I, I like, actually I'm more of a liturgist than most of you guys realize. I, I love regular prayers that I breathe all the time. And, and the prayer I breathe right then is, oh God, may this be your word to your people. May this be empowered by your spirit, not my flesh. And Lord, may your spirit in a John 3 sort of way blow right now in and through my life. Imagine if every Christian prayed that prayer at the office, at the school, driving down the 101, at the store, in that meeting with your HOA, on the golf course. Imagine all the places you are and you would just submit to the spirit as best you can. See, here's what I know. God wants his power to flow through you. He wants to overshadow you like he did Mary. And when you do, there's joy. Here's what I've been trying to get at all day. And with this, we're done. It's your take-home point. And that is that joy is found not in our circumstances, but in the realities of our faith. See, this is the greatest challenge you'll have when it comes to joy. And the number one question I was asked when I was being interviewed on my book for joy was a very, very tender question. The number one question was asked in all the interviews I did was, can I find joy in the midst of my depression? What a question from a disturbed culture. Can I find joy in the midst of my discouragement? Can I find joy in the midst of my disillusionment? Anybody here know the answer to that? Is it yes or no? Yes. It's yes. But the only people that would say yes to that are those that don't find joy in their circumstances, but find joy in the realities of their faith. Here's three realities of your faith I want you to go home with today. Cactus Venue Chapel, take these with you. You have found favor with God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and he's smiling upon you. You have been delivered from the clutches of death and sin, and Jesus reigns, even if you don't always feel it, as Lord in your life. And his power, if you choose, is upon you because his spirit lives in you. And as I say quite often, if that doesn't put a smile on your face, well, I won't say I got nothing more because next week we'll talk further about this as well. And you're gonna be encouraged as we look at further Christmas players who are just like you and I that have found joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that's upon us. I thank you that though, God, we wrestle with the flesh, we deal with our own burdens, we, we struggle with the culture around us, that you say to us, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And as we find our lives hidden in you in faith, we too can be overcomers. So help us to do that, God. Help us to be men and women who are not afraid to look you full in the face, to open up our lives to you and say, I am yours, and to trust in you, and to claim your favor, claim your forgiveness, claim your power, 
as we live with and for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.